Hello and welcome to the Civil Society Futures podcast. Today we are being joined by Is the Third Sector Sexist Collective. If you guys want to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit more about the project, that would be great. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm one of the co-founders of the project. I wanted to help start it because I feel that as a sector, we need to be ahead of the curve and acknowledging faults and blind spots within the sector and really proactively working to change that. Hi, I'm Elle. Um, I started the project because I really believe that everything should be data-led and based on like solid research. And so I wanted to bring some of that into the discussion and debate around sexism in the third sector, really get some solid evidence behind it. And nobody else was doing it, so we thought we would. My name's Claire, and I also co-founded Is the Third Sector Sexist because the third sector is very important to me, as it is to all of us. As we're all embarking on careers in it, we, we wanted to help make it a safe and open space for us all to continue to work in, really. In terms of how it began, we sort of started in the context of growing allegations of sexual misconduct from which the Me Too movement was born and then um, Time's Up and stories of women being given voices to talk about sexual misconduct that had happened to them in the workplace that they hadn't been able to talk about before. And then we were sort of horrified by the, the incidents that happened with the, the President's Club which closed in their charity gala and the terrible things that were happening in the name of charity. I think two weeks later the Oxfam scandal happened and we were thinking about how no sector is immune to sexism and sexual harassment. It's, it's society-wide. And so we wanted to start a conversation bringing it to the sector that, that we're passionate about and that we believe, especially as, as a sector that pushes positive social change, should be particularly concerned with making it um, a positive space for its workers. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm going to go straight for the jugular and ask you, is the third sector sexist? I think quite simply the answer is yes, but every sector is. And we chose the name less as an actual question, more a provocation to start the conversations. Every sector is sexist. We just needed that data, like Elle said, to back up any actions that were to be taken. Yeah, like society is sexist. And that's, it. I mean, like, I think we know that. The sector should be better. Like, we're, we're meant to be the bastions of leading a new and better world. And if we can't lean sexism and, and racism and all the things, the other things that are going on at the moment out of our sector and be a beacon and really be the ones that are saying, like, this is how you do it, this is how we can change society, then what are we doing? We're just, again showing other people oh like this is this is what you do not what we do which is what the charity sector has traditionally done and we need to move past it and you've you've mentioned the me too movement and you know that obviously focused a lot on hollywood and yet you say you know this sexism is a problem in many sectors in terms of the third sector or civil society what does sexism look like are you able to do you think Mm. explain bit more about that? I think it can be on quite a few different levels. We had kind of two different strands to the research we did, which was firstly through a survey. One was kind of looking at sexism and one was sexual harassment. So obviously they're very interlinked, but they do look a bit different. Mm -hmm. And one of the main things we were also looking at was whether organisations had effective policies that people who experienced this could report what their experiences were. Elle knows a bit more about the data than me, so I'm going to pass Mm -hmm. that to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
it's there is the same thing as like that everybody's having with like there's wage gaps there's like more people on trustee board like more men on trustee boards than women and it's predominantly white old men who are on trustee boards but there's also a problem a huge problem that needs to be addressed in fundraising Mm. which is like how do we have how do we let external people interact with our sector like it's great that these people are giving money but at what point do you say like actually we don't want your money if that is how you're interacting with our staff which is like Mm. the president's club and all that kind of stuff and it's like because they're often external and often in positions of power that's a huge thing that we are facing as a sector that other people might not like other sectors might not be facing Mm -hmm. and it's so important fundraising um, departments are often young women and they're not being protected properly and I think we have to really take a hard line on this we do not want your money if you are going to interact with our staff that way we would rather not take your donation if you think it's appropriate to one of the quotes that I read in the research that was the most horrific was get it someone got licked by a donor and it's just like and that and that wasn't addressed and it's like at what point do you just go take your money we'll mm. make it somewhere else and at what lengths are you willing to go to yeah exactly yeah and then I think another um, aspect that we've been really interested in is the care sector and the how the majority of adult social care is done by women which is a very very um, underpaid sector, lots of zero-hours contracts, which is kind of excused, which we find unacceptable in this kind of reinforcing of negative gender stereotypes, which seems to excuse the terrible bad pay mm. as a kind mm. of... And conditions more generally. Way of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. As a way of saying that this is kind of what women do anyway. It's just an addition to the vast amounts of free emotional labour that... Yes. ...that um, <laughs> women do all the time. So it's seen as somehow acceptable for for women to be doing this women's work for not very much money. The sector as a whole is also predominantly women, yet if you look at whether it's boards or leadership teams or CEOs, that skews towards men, usually older men, which is... Usually white men. Usually white men as well, (laughs) uh, which is obviously societally not reflective, but particularly in the charity sector, which is so predominantly um, staffed by women, that is, I'd say, particularly unacceptable. Absolutely. And who would you say, you know, you're young women and you're the ones who are doing this important research. You mentioned the men in leadership positions and positions of power. And if we're thinking about changing the systems and, you know, not making the third sector sexist, who needs to act? Who do you think needs to act? I think one thing that I need to be... um proactive policies in hiring Mm. in uh, internal promotions and elements like that Um, we're seeing a few more like as across all employment uh, more flexible contracts which do predominantly support women who in society have you know caring roles have family roles that also helps men like Mm. it, it helps the whole society but we need more of that in more senior roles that it's kind of seen it when you get to a certain point you're expected to do ridiculous hours weeks ridiculous commutes and also how much is based in london you know rather than where people might live as well i have a particular thing about london centricity um and so it ties in all over there um i also think specific fields within the charity sector again um are more male or female dominated Mm. Again, reflected across a lot of employment, you might see IT and finance teams being predominantly men and more the HR, the communications, the fundraising women. And it's about 
providing training as well yeah. for if someone wants to kind of change within a charity. I find that a lot of more senior roles, they're really keen to get people from outside charities bring a different perspective. But that means that the predominantly young women who've gone in at entry level don't have those opportunities to progress. I think mentorship within the charity sector is important. Uh, opportunities for young women to meet with more experienced women or also peer mentoring in your kind of generation. It can feel quite isolating at times. Um, yeah, I think definitely. that's important in terms of that kind of work. And certain charities are doing really, really well at this. Like Stonewall's policy at the moment is to um, really call out and really put out for BAME applicants, Mm -hmm. for trans applicants and for other like underrepresented areas. And they're really being very honest in the fact that, you know, we don't have enough of these people in our organisation. We really want you to come in. And when you come in, you will have that support. You will have that guidance. You will be cherished within our organisation. And like... I think that's what we need to be doing. Like, yeah, there is, you know, what if you can do that, like put calls out saying, this is a senior position. We want to hear from women. We want to hear from BAME applicants, from uh, applicants, other people who are not represented by our organisation. Same with trustees. Just, yeah. hey, just put it out there. Just I think, like, don't hire another white man. I think a lot of organisations <laughs> are loath to make themselves look bad, as they so think, by mm. being like, oh, we have this problem with, whatever form of diversity it is and if we state that that makes us look bad whereas we would see it as a really positive step because you're being open about the issue and actually trying to change it rather than sweep it under the carpet and that could be like in hiring practices but also across any allegations of sexism of course no organization wants to be in the news for massive sexual harassment misconduct Mm. but i think the perspective has to be looked at don't let it leak out five years later that this happened but actually be we know this happened and these are the steps we're taking these are the policies put in place these are this is the support we provided to people who were affected and be beacons of that more progressive and open attitude mm-hmm. there's issues with transparency across the sector in many many ways and mm-hmm. i think this is one of them it's this idea of we want to look like we don't have a problem which means we're not actually tackling the problem mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because the allegations against Brendan Cox, for example, apparently a lot of people said it was an open secret and that he wasn't, you know, held to account. So I guess it's not only looking at the policies in place, but also the people who are in the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, do you think that, that that's something that is changing, would you say? I think there are more conversations happening about it, but I think... Like in, again, any sector, any organisation, there is a bit of like an old boys club kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I personally can't speak to that specific example. It's not, I'm not in international development. Mm-hmm. But I think we're all very clear that that is something that is unacceptable. And I think along with other forms of sexism, homophobia, racism, whatever it is, in this, there should be um, in some ways whistleblowing protection things in place. And I think charities need to be much more proactive about stating what these are And when something is pulled forward, actually doing something about it. If you hear that a man in your organization or your network is harassing someone, is an abuser, you personally have a responsibility to say something if you are safe to do so. Um, I think there's often a lot of responsibility on, say, the woman who has been harassed to be the one putting the hand up. And that's really difficult, especially if you're young, especially if you're in a position uh, of, of a power imbalance. Nothing horrific has happened to me, but I know there's been situations when I was an intern or a new staff member that I didn't know if something was appropriate or inappropriate, but I felt uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But who do I go to yeah. and feel that that is going to be taken confidentially and that I can trust? Mm-hmm. 
And that's a problem. So if you are in a position, especially when you're witnessing something, speak out, speak to the person if you know them, like, are you okay? Would you like me to kind of mm. report this, take this forward? And if you're friends with a person that you see doing that, call them out. Yeah, there I is think... no excuse for staying silent. And I think the other thing is, is that it's, you need to, quite a lot of the data showed, like quite a lot of the things when it was, we, we asked, like, did you report it? And if you feel comfortable, like, tell us why you didn't or tell us why you, like, what happened when you did. And like loads of the people when we said, did you report it? And they said, no, said, I didn't realize it was sexism at the time. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to talk to. And it's like, we need to be having adequate training in place so that people, all people in organizations can, can identify. So it's not just that thing of, I don't feel comfortable. You're like, this is sexism. This is, this is sexual harassment. This is racism. This is ableism. This is transphobia. And they can really like feel confident in in calling it out because I think a lot of people think those trainings it's like so people don't do it and it's like well actually it's also so you can recognize it in yourself and identify mm -hmm. it because diversity training is uh, compulsory in most organizations I'm not sure about everyone but most of the ones I've worked for mm -hmm. but I think often this kind of training it's often done e-learning style it's mm -hmm. kind of working through slides I know I'm guilty of not paying that much attention to it because I just want to get it done and do my job. Mm -hmm. And so while you may answer the quiz that says, what are protected characteristics under mm -hmm. the Equality Act? That doesn't necessarily help you if you get into a situation and knowing where to go, who to report to, and who I suppose you can trust. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're new to an organisation, it can be difficult to know, is there someone that I'm able to go to and feel comfortable doing that? Mm -hmm maybe for you know feeling jobs are precarious or you're too junior or maybe the person who is named as you know whether it's your manager or an HR person maybe that's the person who is mm. causing problem not um, you know harassing or anything so I think there need to be anonymous reporting procedures I think there need to be named officers who you can go to in every organization and I know small organizations may not have that possibility so I mean this is not a statement for the whole collective but I think it'd be good to have a sector-wide kind of anonymous reporting procedure that may have people who are trained who would know or at least be able to support you in is this a problem how can I you know how can I take this forward how can I report this if you're in a situation where you feel unsure in your organization and I guess it's more about looking at a cultural shift rather than looking just at policies and you know like going to HR and Absolutely. doing diversity training etc there's a lot of activity with activist groups and movements who take these things really seriously. So in terms of sexism, racism, ableism, they, you know, often will read out a safer space policy. Like, do you, in your experiences of working in the third sector, have you come across anything like that? Or is it more traditional diversity training? I think it can depend very much on the organisation you're in. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be the size of the organisation, whether it's national, whether it's local, just how responsive they're able to be. Because I think I found bigger organizations, there's so much bureaucracy and so many hoops to jump through that getting a change, a substan substantive change, can be very difficult. There may be a policy you can find on the internet, but actually changing how that is enacted is difficult. In smaller organizations or in more community groups, networks, I found that there's a bit more flexibility in actually responding to that. What do you think about the housing sector and stuff like that? Um, I think that the housing sector is doing well in sort of trying to sort of make provision, put provisions in place for staff where they already exist for the people that they support. Because maybe in charities, we're, we're very focused on our beneficiaries and um, safeguarding and whistleblowing procedures for them, and then not so much for the people who, who work for the organisations themselves. 
the same the same policies I think like for example most housing associations have a domestic abuse policy for their tenants but it's quite rare to see one actually for staff and so but but there are movements that are sort of bringing it up to date yeah because I think I mean most people in our organization have got different experiences of like where we've worked so small charities largest charities I work for a quite traditionally LGBT charity so we're quite where like we've always been quite good on things like that which has been great because I've had that year of like understanding what it can be like to work in a workforce that isn't sexist terrified of going back to work with straight men again <laughs> I'm like oh god <laughs> I've had something of an opposite thing that I've traditionally worked for very very small women focused organisations anti-trafficking uh, rape crisis centres reproductive rights and now I'm in an organisation which for the most part I've had very good experience with but it is a very different sector for mm. me so it's for me it's really odd actually seeing that most of the senior men and people in the organisation are men mm. I'm, that, I'm just not used to that so it's been a bit of a culture shock there so it's, it's interesting to see, and we're, we're only three of about eight or nine people mm. who run this collective, so if other people here, they'd probably have different things to say. In each organisation, it can be very different. The thing that I think that we do need to do, though, is that, like, it's, like, I get that it's harder to change things in, like, big organisations, and I get that it's easier for smaller organisations to have a more dynamic network, but essentially, like, that was what the Me Too, it's time's up, like, we're done. Like, you change your organisation, you change your structures you use this opportunity and our data if you want to and our report and other people's as well but your time is over now like we are not I think we're like the last generation where we're like not tolerating it anymore being a big old slow organization is not even just not an excuse it's if, if that's your organization you say you can't make a change because of that mm. that's the sign that you probably need to change most mm. yeah absolutely and, and where does again going back to thinking about the responsibility to achieve this change often I guess people can not necessarily hide behind their organisation but they've got responsibilities and they've got kind of trustees and like boards and things like that that they they have to answer to so I guess it's what can people do at at an individual level Mm. and what can people do at an organisational level trustees and boards and senior staff uh, CEOs the people who are the ones people are beholden to I suppose they need to be pushing for the change people who have the power in an organisation need to be pushing for it because so often it's the grassroots it's the lower levels it's new people who are in a more precarious position and who don't have the authority to tick the box and say we're changing this if someone thinks it's not a priority that's a red flag it should be a priority but I do think you can put pressure on them from the bottom and I think that's what like your job is is like and that's what our job is now and that's what most sort of like the activist network and and social media and us like what we want to do is make it untenable. Like you have to change now. If your trustees don't like the fact that you told a donor to go away because <laughs> they uh, sexually harassed a staff, then tell them to go away too. Like it's about like having a zero tolerance policy now. And I guess it's also in the aftermath of the Oxfam scandal, say the children amongst others, there's been a decline in trust in charities. Mm. So the public, you know, we've been reading again and again that people don't really trust charities as much as they used to in the past. What do you think organisations need to do to regain that? Do you think they can? They need to make the changes. If you can show that we saw this thing, we're going to make a change from it, that, I believe, will help to build the trust. In civil society, in the third sector, a lot of people, the public, are losing trust and faith in these organisations. What do you think these organisations can do to kind of regain that trust? 
or do you think they can? That's a really hard one because I, I mean, in terms of Oxfam and things, like I think they are going to really struggle. I think they're going to really struggle to regain trust. And essentially, there will be other organisations that can fill that gap. And essentially, it, and it is a little bit about saying, well, if you can't do it through transparency, you can't do it through honesty and radical honesty and changing your organisation. And, and I know this sounds a bit brutal, but maybe it's your time is done. Mm-hmm. I think there's um, a fair bit of what I've seen as kind of the backlash and lack of trust. It's obviously that the thing happened, but it's also there. it often feels hidden. And it's that lack of transparency. And if people are donating money to a charity to go to good works and mm. whatever that cause may be, it's the we are held to a higher standard than a lot of other sectors because of that. Because we're seen as fighting for real change, filling that gap where public and private sectors can't go. And we're, we are we take public money for your donations. And that, I think, is where people get lose trust most, is that, well, I gave money to that, and this is how you act, what you do, and that you hid it. So, yeah, these particular ones that have recently been named, maybe they can't bring it back, mm. but the sector as a whole, I think it's through honesty, through real change. That's the thing, it's not about a PR move. Mm. And I think it, that can often be the instinct, is to do go into crisis communications mode and just try to cover up what happened or put a spin on it without making the substantive change that is what people want and what people deserve. Yeah, and I think that we have an opportunity as a sector to learn from what we've, what we've gone through and actually use um, our honesty as a sector um, and our people focus not to, not to try to cover up or excuse but to admit where we've fallen down and, and, and to use that as to, um, to sort of exceed the other sectors in this area and to lead the way in change and, and sort of admit and hold our hands up that we were wrong as all the other sectors are and this sort of admittance that, that we're not immune and why would we be expected to be immune and a kind of humanising and a transparency which might be really beneficial to the sector anyway that we, we, we're not sort of this sort of omnibenevolent yes. sort of sector that can't do any wrong that's just do good and, you know, we're, we're humans and where there are humans there unfortunately is also going to be abuse and sexism I love the word omnibenevolent. I'm going to remember that forever. <laughs> GTSE, RE. <laughs> and I guess in order to make those first steps towards positive change, people need to know what's going on. So can mm. you tell me a bit more about your the data that you have so far and I guess the research questions that you might have been asking people in the response? Yeah. So the research question, we, we tried to do it very simply. Um, and what we wanted to do is really just provide a space for both the quality, the quantitative, so like the numbers that everybody wants. Everybody wants you to be able to go like, and that's what they want you to go. How many people have experienced sexism in the third sex? And we go 49%, which is true um, and very depressing. But we also wanted to mix that with qualitative. So to bring the storytelling and the data together for a mass number of people. So we got five over 500 responses. 48%, which is what I said, have a personal experience sexism, around like 32% of experience sexual harassment within the third sector, a very, very worryingly low amount reported it. And their reasons for report for not reporting it are that they, they didn't feel confident, they didn't know where to go, they didn't know it was sexism or sexual harassment at the time, they were young, it was early career, 
or that they did and their organisation brushed it under the carpet. And so what we're going to do now is uh, we also asked what would make it better? Like, what do you want to see? So we asked, is your organisation that you're working in now equipped to deal with sexism? And then we, if they said yes, we asked them why. And if they said no, we asked them why. And so what we can do then is really bring in some like, like ground level, data led, experience led policies around how we can, how organisations can change. And we can give this to them as like, this is the data, here it is here is how they are changing. Like it's now time for you to go to the people in your organization, go to the people who are your stakeholders, your beneficiaries, and, and really start to make that change. And for any, I don't know, large charitable organizations or you know, powerful CEOs and stuff who do want to make that positive change, what advice can you give them? Well, I think that one thing that we've um, struggled with slightly as a collective is how much uh, we've been listened to despite doing this amazing piece of research, despite having over 500 responses and being one of the largest research pieces of its kind at the moment. We've kind of, we've, we've struggled to be taken seriously as young women, which has been really sort of very interesting actually. But frustrating. Um, but, and very, mm-hmm. very frustrating that our research is trying to challenge these hierarchical structures which just sort of breed sexism and racism and this sort of people like me mentality in workplace practices mm. and recruitment um, when actually the, a lot of people who have been asking us about um, our research have wanted it to be backed up by a large organisation that we're part of or organisations that we might be speaking on behalf of um, when we want it to be seen as a collective as a standalone entity and as women in our own rights and not connected to boards and trustees and that kind of thing and so I think that what, what we would say from that is listen to the people who are telling you the stories. Don't, you know, if it's a young woman telling you about this truth, don't look for the bigger picture. She is the bigger picture. You need to listen to her and learn from her, or otherwise you're perpetuating the kind of hierarchical structures that we're trying to challenge. Amen. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. I think it's been like one of our biggest frustrations because we do... You know, it, that, like, that's what we're saying and that's what we've always said. If you are a CEO of a large organisation that is looking to change, start by listening to your workforce. Mm-hmm. Just listen to the people who are around you and believe what they are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, have a look at your data. Go back and look at what's happened in your organisation. Mm-hmm. Because I can guarantee you for every person who, well, we saw around 24% of people reporting. So for every report you've got in your organisation, there is probably three that weren't reported minimum and start to look at that data who is it what's happening if for some reason you don't have that data our data is going to be available for people to look at as well as our report and we're in the process of pulling that together and writing it right now that's going to include recommendations for how organizations can put better policies into place and action that so that will be on our website which is mm-hmm. is the third sector sexist dot wordpress.com and our social media yeah so, we'll be definitely shouting about it oh yeah we are gonna be shouting. <laughs> so if anyone would like to share that data yeah. it will be available and one of the great things about the way we ask the data is that we can actually go in it and look at what size of organization people are talking from and mm-hmm. um, so if people we ask people what whether their organization is equipped now and we also ask them what organization um, size they're working in now so we can really show people okay you're in a small organization this is what people in small organizations told us like you're in a medium-sized organization this is what people in a medium organization told us 
Um, so with civil society futures in our interim one-year report, um, mm -hmm. I guess the overarching theme was putting power in the hands of people in communities. Do you think with your piece of work, you, you know, people can get power, young women can have power to challenge sexism in the third sector? I think that's our hope. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's what we when yeah. young women in the third sector, I guess. That's, yeah, we, we <laughs> are that demographic. In many ways, we're the demographic we were researching on behalf of. Peer of research. Essentially, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we, in the collective, have also set up our kind of an environment that is the yeah. kind we would like to be replicated elsewhere. So I would say this has been the most supportive working environment I've ever been in, most understanding and most... Everyone trusted each other and believed in the skills of each other. I think we brought out particular skills and expertise that we might not necessarily have known we had. And of course, that's a small scale, but I feel like that has empowered me. And in my current workplace, in other volunteering places that I, I go to and in the future may do, I feel empowered from this. So okay. as well as hopefully people... <laughs> taking from our eventual report and the data feeling empowered there I would also encourage people if you are feeling maybe disempowered or disenfranchised and might want to do something maybe try and get in touch with other people whether that's on social media whether that's in a network you're in and I can guarantee there'll be other people who want to join that and maybe set up maybe whether it's an activist campaign or just a support group I have always wanted to do something like this, but I don't have, say, the data expertise. And I've learned a lot here. My thing was always much more communications. And so I would never have been able to do this by myself in the way we've done it. But having people like Elle, who has this background, and other people in the collective, I have felt able to do this and able to speak with confidence on the data we've collected. And for me, that's been incredibly valuable. And have you been quite explicit in your organize, organizing kind of model and process? Like Very. <laughs> how do you organize? How do you work together? Well, I think we've been quite unique in that we've had a lot of members. It's been quite fluid. We've been like the sugar babes. <laughs> I love the sugar babes in the charity sector. We've changed. We've changed from the, the people that started at the beginning and our roles have changed and we've always promoted a sort of acceptance of if you if we've ever needed to if someone's needed to take a step back because other things in their life have taken over then that's been absolutely fine and they're welcome to join again at another time as we said to you earlier the word sorry is banned so we completely <laughs> accept that you know we have lots of other responsibilities yeah. um, and we're, we're very supportive to each other we not we don't only talk about the research we, we also use it as a way to support other things that we're going through and and it's definitely not like if you take a step back from the research, then you're out. So all the people that have contributed, however however much, will be part of our report in some way. It won't just be the people who are actively writing it. We'll also involve everyone who's helped us along the way. Yeah, and we're a collective, so we don't have leadership of like founder mentality. We really wanted to get away from the idea of... like Because the first person who put it on the Facebook page, that person is not the founder. The, the fact that they wrote one post one time and said, hey, let's kind of do something loose, like to be like, well, it's mine now, it discounts the incredible amount of work that everybody has put into it, everybody has done on you know different scales and in different skill sets. And we really try and push the idea that this is, we make decisions as a collective, we make we have meetings as collectives and we don't have any hierarchical structure when we brought people in who hadn't weren't in the original 
Sugar Babes team, <laughs> they were brought in and told very much like, we'll give you a mentor so you feel equal and in, in like talk in talking in our meetings and stuff, but you are now an equal partnership with us and there is no kind of founder babies because because that's how because then we because one of the things that we've really struggled with as an organization because we realized we were in a bit of a bubble is that we're all white women and it's something that we've tried to like kind of go through and we've been trying to work out different ways and we're very honest in the fact that that's a huge misstep it meant that there was our data wasn't particularly ethnically diverse we like have tried to counter that as much as possible but unfortunately the beginning of it the fact that we didn't see it as an issue because were white women and we made a mistake in not understanding that that would have been a problem you know we are flexible in that we're willing to make mistakes whereas if I think if you have a founder who's like this project is mine it's like well then that's when you start to get the kind of and no fault can come of this because it's my baby and it's like we've always tried to really really take ego out of the question yeah and I think um if we've noticed someone's been a bit absent or a bit quiet there's been a deliberate trying to you know not question that sounds very um where are you yeah <laughs> like, reach out and be like yeah, you know yeah. kind of are you okay and do and you want to take a break totally, yeah and it's totally okay guys. it's totally yeah. and making the room for people to you know have burnout and things like that Absolutely. And obviously they're doing all the things exactly and because this we've all got a full-time job some people have a side hustle as well we've got volunteering we've got lots of commitments that while we would love for this to be our number one the real yeah, world if you want to fund us <laughs> um, but you know we've you yeah. know, we've had that respect for everyone the whole time and if someone says actually I've just got to sit out for a month there's yeah. no questions even asked which I think is it yeah. makes it easier to say when that's an issue if you're having a bad day even you know, you just yeah. need something there um, like I said I find this an incredibly supportive environment and I'd say back to the question of um, being deliberate in the way we're structured so the very first thing we did was creating the survey before we did anything yeah. else and of course we all came in with different priorities different layers of expertise and so while the survey was kind of initially drafted by one or two everyone had input on that questioning about the way it was worded and the order and particularly for uh, questions that got around uh, gender identity we reached out to i believe it was stonewall was it? Yeah. yeah yeah to make sure that the way we were asking that was properly inclusive mm. because we didn't want our biases to make that feel exclusive to yeah. particular groups and we have had comments that that was one of the most inclusive surveys people had um, yeah. taken part in which was really important to us so we were glad that kind of happened yeah we did the same with ethnicity as well like uh, because obviously yeah again we were all white so we were like um, don't know how to ask the question so we reached out to organizations and asked what their best practice was to do it we decided actually that we would kind of change it a little bit and so we have free what's the word they could they can click as many as they want yeah. so you do, it's not just like we don't just have like black black british black other mm-hmm. you can and if it's not on the list then you can add it in mm-hmm. but you can put that you're black british and white english you can put that you're white like yeah white cornish was a great one <laughs> loved that i was like didn't didn't know that was a thing but sure we wanted this to be inclusive mm-hmm. and so that was what we reached out very initially to try and make sure that we'd made it that way mm-hmm. and so from day one, that was we haven't really got a founding charter, but that would probably be number one on the charter after "Don't Say Sorry." Yeah, it would be one. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, deliberately try and be inclusive at all times, and if there's something that's uncomfortable, raise it, reach out, all that kind of stuff. And admit when you just we admit when we made mistakes. Absolutely, like, I think it's absolutely a hundred percent has to be one of your things in life. Generally, if I could give for someone life mm-hmm. advice, 
I'm not sure why they'd take it. but uh, I would also tie that back mistakes. to what we were saying about um, organisations making changes. Yeah, totally. But, yeah, you've got to be the one to kind of put your hand up. Sure, maybe you don't have to put out a proactive press release saying something, but be honest about the environment you're in. and At sure, least to your staff. At least to your staff. Yeah. Being, you know, be inclusive to your staff. And if you think that, you know, if, you, if someone has raised an issue saying actually a document, um, a policy, an activity was not inclusive, then genuinely reflect on it and don't just brush that off. I think a lot of times any issues that are raised can be seen as someone being too sensitive, things like that. And so in our organization, we have basically said there's no such thing as too sensitive. If you have a feeling, if you've had an experience, that's valid and we are open to that and calling each other out as well if we think someone has said something that is offensive you know we're in an environment where we can say actually no I'm not okay with that and there's not kind of long-term bad feeling about that and that again ties into this is the environment we personally want to work in and develop anywhere we work and this has been a great opportunity for us to do that I guess my question my next question is really like you've mentioned that you're all white women and you want to kind of increase the diversity of your collective in terms of age, I assume you're all millennials, um, and uh, sometimes millennials get a bad rap for, you know, trying to make the world to, you know, an equal place, and you yeah, know, spending too much, to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> snowflakes, and being too sensitive, and spending too much money on avocados, etc. Um, I guess my question is for for women who are older, who mm. might be, you know, in leadership positions in the third sector and civil society. What, what would you say, like, how would you kind of bring them into the fold and, and your movement? Do you think that, that, that there's room for that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my very personal experience, um, just in my family, uh, my mum has been a guiding feminist light for me and uh, inclusive in that way. There's always space for those kind of discussions. I think it's also about older women or older men, older communities not thinking they have all the answers, but similarly for young people to not assume that people are over the hill, per se. A lot of organizations, the feminist organization I've worked in, were started by women who are now in their 60s, 70s, and who are super progressive and super inclusive and super um, accepting of different points of view. So it's about breaking out of that bubble. But I would say that it's important to listen to the young voices and not dismiss them because you think of them as snowflakes, because they eat avocado, whatever it is. <laughs> if you believe that a young person's input is perhaps not nuanced or not contextual, have a discussion. Don't just ignore it because it's a young person saying that. And, or whatever other demographic that is. Mm. People of colour, ethnicity, religion, gender, sex, um, yeah. sexual, sexuality, can't speak to it. You know, if your first instinct is that someone's being too sensitive, ask yourself why that's your instinct mm. and open up the conversation. And you, you mentioned opening up the conversation. Another thing we've been hearing a lot with civil society features is that there are a lack of spaces for people yeah. to come together to have these difficult conversations. Especially out of London. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that that can change? Mm. I think it can. What what would need to happen for that to be a possibility? What would need to happen for your collective to speak to, say, older women in the sector? Being invited to things as speakers. Yeah, I think it's difficult because I think there can be a two-way process. Like, and it's, yeah, it's about, like... Mm 
inviting us in as well as us like being up to listen to things we have had this issue like Claire was saying of people and women which is always disappointing being like oh can you get X to speak at this event about sexism in the third because sector. Because they know we're vaguely connected and then to them. They, and then we go, well, no, no, but we would love to speak at that. And they're mm. like, no, no, um, can you get X to speak? Like, there's somebody who so we're connected to it. Yeah, and, and it's like, well, we will ask them, absolutely. But why won't you let us speak on sexism in the third sector when we're the ones who are doing this project? Mm. So it needs to be a duality of things. Because, I mean... One of the things that I really struck me this week personally is I was talking to somebody who was like talking about struggling as a young person and they went, well, I did that when I was 18. And it's like, well, actually, like I know from personal experience that poverty when I was, I, I moved out of home at 16 and I was homeless, but I know that poverty from, from when I was 16, which was 14 years ago, uh, but you know, like I know it's so different now, like poverty looks incredibly different now, like austerity is hit incredibly hard. My rent was 200 pounds a month, like you're definitely not going to get that now. And so it is about realistically looking and listening to everybody's story. I think perhaps the reason why women, older women, can be slightly dismissive of sexualism or sexual harassment is that like they've just hardened to it over the years because it was so prolific. Mm. Yeah, and just sort of... Or they might feel a sort of relief that they've got to a position where it doesn't affect them so much that they feel like they have more um, power or they've kind of hardened themselves to dealing with it. So I think mm. it's just sort of keeping the door open to your to your beliefs and not being exclusive of anything like just because you've achieved something for yourself or achieved it for a particular group there'll always be people who are disempowered and actually once you've got to a point of empowerment it's your responsibility to to hand that down to other people who don't have it because there will always be people who aren't part of the conversation you realize that's on record now you can just like play it back every 10 years being like are you still doing it <laughs> are you still doing it and finally we asked this whenever we speak to people about civil society futures, um, because we're looking 10 years into the future and our hope is that there'll be a flourishing civil society in England, I guess my question is, what's your hope and fears for the future of civil society, the third sector, particularly with the lens looking at sexism? I'd say one of my big fears is about how funding keeps getting cut. And of course, that then affects um, who can access the sector because unpaid internships or low-paid jobs it's very exclusive, it's very, cuts out a huge a voice. Uh, talking about different demographics, it's going to hit the people least able to take an unpaid internship. And it also squeezes out smaller organisations. I think small charities, especially grassroots ones, are often the ones doing the most innovative work, mm. um, the most people-focused work, community-focused work. And they're the ones that if they lose what seems like a relatively small grant or funding opportunity, they close. There's mm. no backup there. And so... I guess I have a fear of big organisations that already have all the political sway, all the the resources kind of muscling out smaller organisations and it becoming a monopoly, which we're very much seeing already, I would say. Mm. Um, And my fear is that would get worse. Yeah, we definitely don't want the too big to fail thing that happened in the banks happening in the third sector. That would be absolutely terrible. Yeah. What's your hopes and fears? Too many fears. <laughs> I can speak again while you think. No, um, my like my my hope for the future of the civil of like civil society is that 
it has like a bigger place within society but also like starts to this is from a really nerdy and it kind of goes on to funding actually i think we need to start being like having that discussion with funders about what we will and won't do and being more robust i think there's quite a culture at the moment of like being grateful for money because there's not a lot around and taking what and, and taking things where it's like exploitative contracts for young people or like your people early in their career where it's like the funding only gives you £20,000 for a London worker and you like starting to have those conversations back about being like no actually you need to start getting better at how you fund projects non, non like these short funded precarious yeah. contracts for which is predominantly women people of colour like young people young people who get these contracts like we need to start going to funding bodies and say actually a one-year contract on no money is just not good enough we are the civil society and people deserve a living wage and job security just as much as they do anywhere else yeah we have to try and attract applicants as well because there's still a problem that as hannah was saying it's still a career choice that a lot of people don't consider still so I think ways that careers in the, in the third sector are sort of advertised definitely needs to change so that working for a charity is not seen as the same as volunteering. <laughs> I think also recruiting a lot of charities, especially for entry-level thing, essentially, if they don't say they require it, want you to have done volunteering and interning. Yeah. And that's great for those of us who are able to do so. But it's a massive assumption to say that someone should have throughout university or after university or before been able to dedicate a great period of their time to working for free. It's great some people do, but you shouldn't have to to be able to get a job. In it's the also kind of not great that some people do because it feels <laughs> like you shouldn't work for free. I'm like, and I know, uh, and you don't deserve to work for free. Like, like regardless of your. I know, and I know, like, I mean, I've done it, you've done it, we've all done it, like, um, those, like, three months unpaid internships, so you're just like, I have only beans and toast for so long now, but you shouldn't have to work for free on a, what is essentially a job, and I think that's the other thing that we need to do, is start separating that, like, if it's paid work, there is a difference between volunteering and paid work. The number of things I've seen that is a full-time volunteering position. Or pay, or, like, that's a, not acceptable. job. Yeah. Like, you're like, oh, if it's a full-time, it needs to be paid. It just yeah. does. Like, that's yeah. not acceptable. I think internships generally, of course, is a bigger discussion in society, but my understanding is internships started as a sort of couple of weeks or one day a week for a while to get experience you couldn't otherwise get. Turning it into six months unpaid in London, full-time, is unacceptable for a charity for a charity <laughs> yeah. and I have to say a lot of charities you'll see charities that f- fight for uh, ending modern day slavery uh, fight for a living wage who <laughs> have it, unpaid interns again it shouldn't be anywhere but especially somewhere like London which is mm. so expensive to live that is unacceptable and frankly I think any charity that has unpaid internships should abolish that tomorrow mm. Amen well <laughs> Yeah, Thanks. definitely. A lot, guys. Thank um, you. Where can people find out more about your work and your collective? Well, Hannah mentioned our website, so that's is the third sector sexist.wordpress.com at the end of WordPress.com. So we're on Twitter at is third sect sexist. You have been listening to the Civil Society Futures podcast. To hear more episodes like this, you can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes. Search Civil Society Futures. You can find out more about the inquiry at www.civilsocietyfutures.org and follow us on Twitter at CivSocFutures.